to him. And everything that he was preaching, everything that he was teaching, and you find then, um, back down at the end of uh, chapter 14, we find this little incident with Peter and the things that befell him regarding his confession of Christ and his denial of him. And we really denoted, uh, noted that he did not lose faith. And I think that's important when we think about what Peter went through when he was there in the garden, when he was there uh, at the high priest's house, and he was confronted by the slave girl, that all the things that took place with Peter was not marked by failure of faith. Failure in courage? Yes. Humiliated in front of the whole crowd? Yes. Mark gives us just a simple little statement in verse 72. He says, and when he thought about it, he wept. How many times have you and I been in a position where we have had opportunity to stand for the Lord, to be a witness for him, and then failed? We walked away and didn't say anything. And immediately, you regretted it. And so many times in those opportunities, you don't get a chance to recover. It was a one-time shot. Peter, thankfully, was restored. And not only was he restored, but his faith, which he did not lose, was strengthened. Now, beginning in chapter 15, you'll notice the first word, immediately. Immediately in the morning. So as I said, they've been up all night. All of these things have been transpiring. And now it's sometime between 5 and 6 o'clock in the morning. And you'll see it says, The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. So you're looking at the entire Sanhedrin. But the thing I wanted us to see here, it's the chief priests took the lead role. You know, they were standing back trying to let um, the others who were making accusations against the Lord and letting their witness and their statements stand. And as we found out as we went through chapter 14, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't agree. And so nothing, nothing held up. And so finally the chief priests step in, and they're going to make it stick. And they're going to make something happen, because they want Jesus dead. And so when he says the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So the religious leaders, the Jews played a big part in the crucifixion and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, we haven't seen Pilate's name mentioned yet. Pilate was in town. 
He didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea. Caesarea was a town on the Mediterranean coast. And it was an interesting town, and sometime we ought to investigate that. It was amazing. To, it's, it's just an amazing thing to me, Caesarea. You know, they had a harbor there, and they had built, um, um, I guess you'd call it a quay, out into the water where they could harbor ships. There was no natural harbor there. Did you know the Romans invented concrete that would cure underwater? And they used it there in Caesarea to build that harbor. That is an amazing thing. Well, he had come to Jerusalem, nobody knows why, but apparently for Passover. Uh, it's a big, big thing. Thousands and thousands of people coming from all over Israel were coming into Jerusalem. So here's Pilate. He's in town. They bring Jesus to Pilate. In verse 2, it says, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, as I've stated other times, we've been focusing specifically and carefully on Mark's gospel. To get a full-orbed account of everything that's going on, we would have to go check with Matthew and, and uh, Luke and John to fill in all the details. And there are more, by the way. As a matter of fact, speaking of that, Guess what happens between verse 1 and 2 that Mark doesn't deal with? Turn back to Matthew chapter 27. I almost forgot that. Um, and I just, yeah, Matthew chapter 27. Now you see the first verse where it says, When morning came. So we got the same scene, the same event here. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. That's what the whole meeting of the Sanhedrin was all about. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now notice verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. At the same time that Peter was remorseful and ruining his denial of the Lord Jesus, so Judas. And so Judas... While these events were going on here and leading Jesus over to Pilate's residence where he was staying to the governor's house, he was out taking his own life because of what he had done. So while that's going on, Pilate then asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to them, It is as you say. Now, that's a much debated response on the part of the Lord Jesus, you'll notice it is as, is all in italics. So Jesus didn't use those words. He just said, you say. Well, what did he mean? Well, that's the big debate. What was he implying? Was he confessing, I'm the Christ? Was he trying to be evasive? What was going on? I don't know. 
I can tell you this, the word you is emphatic, meaning Pilate, you say, or maybe speaking on behalf of all the Jews, you say. That's what you Jewish leaders are saying. And it may very well been simply that um, he was leaving the door open to further discussion. You know, one thing that Jesus never denied, never hesitated about, was confessing that he was the Messiah. He didn't always use the word king. And he didn't say, I'm a king. But he did say, I am the Messiah. He never backed down from that. So, and then the interesting thing is, is um, you know, when he says, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's you is emphatic. When Jesus responded, his you is emphatic also. So he's being very pointed about his answer. Um, it seems to imply that he's not denying in any sense of the word that he was the Messiah or that he was the king of the Jews, at least not in any political sense, because obviously that's what Pilate was interested in. <laughs> are you claiming to be a political king? Because if you are, I'm a political king, and I'm going to be against you. Well, we find out in one of the other synoptics that Jesus told him, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it was, my servants would be fighting you. We would take up arms. And we would be seeking to take your place. And that's why Pilate responded the way he did. He understood exactly what Jesus was saying. That I'm no threat to your throne. So you don't really have to worry about me. And so consequently, then, you know, after questioning Jesus, he's, he's ready to release him. He's ready to let him go. So I find no fault in this guy. Well, in verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And by the way, you'll notice through this whole scenario the silence of Jesus in the face of his accusers. And that in in First um, Peter chapter two, you know, I'm not sure we stop and think about how significant that was, but the early church took note of that. It was amazing, amazing to them that he just sat there and said nothing, all the while they were throwing their insults at him, mocking him, spitting on him. Hitting him, he never responded. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, I believe. Yep. Okay, let me find it. I'm, I'm not in the right, I'm in the Peter, but I'm in the wrong Peter. I'm in the second. Here we go. Did you see verse, verse 23 concerning the Lord Jesus? It says, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. They were enamored by the whole idea that Jesus did not respond at all to his accusers. The silence of Jesus in the face of all of this was simply an indication that 
the things that he had told his disciples earlier about his coming death, burial, and resurrection was all to be expected. He knew why he was there, he knew what he had to endure, and he was ready to face the consequences. Now, in view of that even, and all I'm going to get ahead of myself, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, and go over to Acts chapter 2. You know, I know that when you come to these enigmatic things, a lot of times I think we like to go back to Deuteronomy to get our answer. Sometimes, you know, Deuteronomy says the secret things belong to the Lord, and well, we just can't know. Well, I, I think this is a good answer right here. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This verse says, Him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, there's a double whammy in that verse. The first half of the verse talks about God's purpose. He says he was, it was the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God that these things were going to happen. And, of course, we know from the prophets that these things were predetermined to happen to the Lord Jesus. Yet, on the other hand, the will of man was involved. He says, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. So we see that purpose of God, the will of God, the determinate counsel of God was being carried out right here in chapter 14, chapter 15. Everything that was going on. And yet on the other hand, there was the will of the men involved who were against the Lord Jesus. And who will, by the way, be held responsible for what they did? It's one of those great enigmas of Scripture. So once you've looked at that passage, now we can go back to Deuteronomy 29 and say, well, the secret things belong to the Lord, because that's a hard one to figure out. So all, just keep in mind all of these things we know are happening for a reason and for a purpose. And the Lord Jesus sat there in silence, enduring everything that they hurled at him. So in verse 5, Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. So we know what kind of character he was. And anybody who was in rebellion against Rome, there was one, one sentence for you, and that was death. And that was what he stood to receive from Pilate. But verse 8 says, Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them, but that was it is, to release one prisoner. It was the custom. Uh, oftentimes, it was, well, it was just to appease the crowd. And we find this word used later on. So Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 
for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Don't you just marvel at the insight of Pilate? And he understood the Jewish people very well, and he understood the Jewish leaders. And he realized exactly what was happening, and by making his appeal to the people, he was hoping that they would say, release Jesus, and this murderer, Barabbas, you go ahead and crucify him. But that wasn't what happened. Because it says in verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd. Now, it's interesting, the literal meaning of that word stirred up is shook up. They were out, you know, if you were holding a, a, um, a what, I'm, I'm losing my word here, a protest. You've got people that are professionals, they go out and they're agitators. And they worked the crowd up. That's exactly what was happening here. They were agitators, stirring them up. And he says here then that they should, so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. Now, another interesting sidelight. Turn over to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, and I believe verse 13. Um, Oh, that's not it. Well, I think it is anyway. Well, why did I have that reference there? I don't know, so let's just forget it. Um, what do I have that for, Jeff? What does it say? Okay, that was it. That is exactly what I was after. Pilate had decided to release him, <laughs> and yet the crowd got so stirred up, so agitated that his matter of fact. Then, if you go to um, verse fifteen, it says, "So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd or appease the crowd, turned Jesus over to them, and he also released Barabbas." So in verse 12, Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So in a good example of mob rule, where all sense of reason and rational thinking just goes right out the window. Emotion is the charge of the day. Emotion is what was driving the crowd, and so crucify him. He released Barabbas to them, but he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now again, Mark's account is brief. You have one little phrase, he scourged him. I'm sure you've heard stories and heard in messages how brutal the scourging was. When they stripped his clothes off his back, caused him to bend over and expose himself, where the Roman soldiers could take a whip, and I'm sure you've heard how they took pieces of broken bone, tied them in the, in, into the whip, and then whipped the back of Jesus 
and letting them little bones just cut into his flesh. Now, in the Jewish law, you know, it was 39 or 40 stripes minus one. So they could give 39. They wouldn't give 40 because they didn't want to break the law. Romans had no such rules. They just whipped them until they were done. Who knows how long this went on? It doesn't really tell us. Mark's account is so very brief. But it was not a pretty sight. And so in verse 16, the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. Now the Praetorium was the governor's headquarters um, where he would stay when he came in to Jerusalem. Pilate, in other words. Where was that? Nobody knows. It could have been Herod's palace. It could have been the fortress Antonia, which was on the northwest side of the Temple Mount area. There was a fortress there. Could have been one of those places. And it says they called together the whole garrison. A garrison consisted of 600 soldiers. This was no small event going on regarding the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. They clothed them with purple. Oh, by the way, then, you see in verse 16 when it says, Then the soldiers, who they turned them over to. He was now with the Romans, and they were in charge. And these soldiers, in all likelihood, it's doubtful any of them had ever met up with the Lord Jesus before. His ministry was to the Jewish people. It's likely that they never knew or had any idea who he was. And so these soldiers then, they began to have fun. To them, he was just another one that they were crucifying. Ones amongst hundreds that were crucified every year. So it was meaningless to them. So this was a time of fun. This was a time to make mockery. They clothed him with purple they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And it says they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Pure mockery in ignorance. They struck him on the head with a reed. And, and by the way, one of the other accounts says they put a reed in his hand. In other words, they put the crown of thorns on his head they put the reed in his hand that was supposed to be a staff representing royalty and regality and a king. And then, of course, evidently they took the same reed, hit him over the head with it, spit on him. This, by the way, is not the, second, the first time he was spit on. It's not the first time he was beaten. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Matter of fact, for me, I just turned back one page. And if you look in chapter 14, verse 65, when he was at the trial, it says there, some began to spit on him and to blindfold him, to beat him, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. So it's happening all over again now. And by the way, when it says they worshipped him, it was in mockery again. Matter of fact, verse 20, And when they had mocked him and took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him, they led him out to crucify him. 
Now he, when they led him out to crucify him, they were leading him out of the governor's headquarters, whichever one it was, they were leading him outside the walls of the city where he was to be crucified. In doing so, and it's assumed that when they got somewhere near the gates of the city, verse 21 says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, he was a Cyrenian, so that means he was from Cyrene. And this is my... Help me, Mark. Is it coming? I thought all I had to do was touch that and it was going to work. Huh? Yeah, well, it's woke up here. But it isn't woke up up there. Oh. See, I knew better. I should have known better than a fool with that stuff because it don't. When I'm involved, it doesn't work. Okay. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I got wind of just coming up two steps there. Uh, how many know where Libya is located? On the North Shore, that's where Cyrene was. Cyrene was a city on the North Shore of North Africa, where Libya is located. Now, he tells us there, well, let me just say, some people have said that they thought that this Cyrenian, uh, Simon the Cyrenian, was, was a black man because he was from Africa. No, he was a Jew. In Cyrene, there was a large colony of Jewish people living there. And they would commonly then make the trip over to Israel for Passover. It was not an uncommon thing. As a matter of fact, they would go over there for business or whatever. Um, it, it, it was not uh, something that was unusual for this man to have been there as a Jew. Another thing you'll notice here, why do they give the names Alexander and Rufus. <coughs> the assumption, because nobody knows, but I think it's a good one, and that we need to think about as well. As a matter of fact, let me, let me see, there's a phrase... Yeah, at the end of the verse there, it says concerning him, he was coming out of the country and passing by. The implication is it was just a, a happenstance, a chance, that here just happened to be Simon the Cyrenian coming by, and they grabbed a hold of him in order to bear the cross of Jesus. I don't think so. I think our verse, Acts 2.23 that these things happened by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, that this was already set in place. And it was going to be him and nobody else. And as, as far as Alexander and Rufus are concerned, 
It seems then that the church, the early church, remembered this man, Simon, because of what he had done for the Lord Jesus and a seemingly innocent thing of passing by and yet chosen of God to bear this honor of carrying the cross of the Lord Jesus. I could just, now of course my mind went to wandering and, you know, I'm imagining things. So I'm, I'm, evidently these people were believers. Alexander and Rufus became believers in the Lord Jesus. They were members of the church. And the early community of believers honored them because of what their father had done. I'm a guessing. To bear his cross. Now, I know all the graphic pictures you see of Jesus bearing the cross is, you know, the long timber with the cross going this way in the shape of the Greek letter tau. But in all likelihood, he wasn't carrying the whole thing. He just carried the cross beam. Now, you might wonder, well, why would that be? Remember we said there were so many crucifixions going on? They didn't pull that stake up every time. Outside the city, those stakes stayed right in the ground where they were. So all they had to do then was put the crossbeam over and hang them on it. And by the way, I have no way to verify this, but they said that thing could have weighed as much as 100 pounds. So you can imagine then if Jesus having to bear his cross and only could get as far as the gates of the city. Now, back in those days, it wasn't all that far. But his body was so weak and emaciated and torn and beaten from the trial, from the mockery of the crowd, from the Roman soldiers, that was as far as he could go. And I don't, I don't know if it's legitimate to go make a connection to the Lord's admonition to people like you and me when we're called upon to take up his cross as a disciple and what that should imply to us. You know, if you look back at, at <coughs> excuse me, what Matthew has to say regarding that, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now Jesus also, concerning the yoke, said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But here he's talking about taking up a cross. And the cross that Jesus bore was not an easy one. I don't think that we should expect our cross to be any easier to bear either. Well, they brought Jesus, it says, to this place called Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Now, that was important for Mark to translate this so that his Roman readers, because you remember Mark was the gospel written primarily for Roman readers. So he translated that so they would understand what it was. And it means place of a skull. Now, we've seen the two pictures 
the two scenes, the two places that are commonly depicted as being the, the, what they think is, at least, Golgotha. Which one is correct? I don't know. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre sits on one. The other one's called Gordon's Calvary. Uh, take your pick. They gave him wine to drink, it says, and mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. <coughs> and again, another indication that the Lord Jesus Christ knew exactly why he was there, what the suffering and the humiliation and the mockery and the beating that he was taking was for us. And in order to fulfill and experience the full effects of all he was going through because God had foreordained it, in his predetermined counsel before the foundation of the world, he knew this is what was to be. And so in consequence of that, he refused to take anything that would ease the pain, that would diminish even one iota what God the Father had called him to suffer on our behalf. And he didn't take it, he says. And when they crucified him, that is, when they'd killed him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. You remember, they took the robe off of Jesus. It says they put his own clothes on him. Even what he had, his earthly goods, they stripped him of. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. That is, nine o'clock in the morning. So you remember it was immediately, verse one, in the morning, it was between five and six, all these events were taking place. Now it's nine o'clock. He's been carried or led out to the gates of the city, over to Golgotha, and now he's on the cross. And the suffering of the cross has now begun. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. And with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered <coughs> with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And, of course, that was the ultimate mockery. And, of course, the, the completely missing the double meaning that Jesus had for everything that he said in that statement when he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Having no idea whatsoever that they were talking about his body. And that even at this very moment, they were guilty of doing the very thing that he had predicted they would do. And as a matter of fact, and if I remember, ooh, I hope I remember that verse. 10, yeah, 1034. Look back at Mark chapter 10, verse 34. In verse 33, Jesus was telling his disciples, he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. 
And the third day, he will rise again. All of these things that we've just been looking at in chapters 14 and 15, he predicted it ahead of time and told his disciples exactly what was going to happen. And now, in view of that, here they are to mock him and say, well, you said you could destroy this temple and you could build it in three days. That, I'm talking about the literal temple now. He said, you made a claim you could do that? Well, if you can do that, you can take yourself down off this cross. And so likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. It was mockery. It was reviling. It was accusing him from the very beginning. Because as Peter himself said on the day of Pentecost, when he was preaching his first sermon there in Acts chapter 2, in the very verse we were just looking at, Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, he said, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. What Jesus has told his disciples over and over again, what was to come, and they didn't get it. Now, in the resurrection, they finally got it. They finally understood all that the prophets had told was going to happen with the Lord Jesus. And he says, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you Jews have done these things and crucified the Son of God. I always remember a statement that when, you know, many times it's asked the question, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Who bears all the responsibility? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jewish people? Was it the Gentiles in general? Was it all of us? And I always remember the, the, a, a, a thought-penetrating statement that he made that at Passover, it was only the Jew who killed the lamb. And when the lamb was on the cross, it was only a Jew that could put him to death. It was the Jews' responsibility to crucify the lamb in preparation for Passover. And the Passover lamb, they crucified him. We have no way to finish this up. We take it up. Jesus is still on the cross. Nine o'clock in the morning, it began. Our next verse says, now when the sixth hour had come, three o'clock in the afternoon. And we're going to take it up there. And we'll, unfortunately, I'm sorry, it's going to be a couple weeks. 
But we'll finish the story. And when we finish the story, we find out that in spite of all that Jesus had to endure, and what looked like utter failure from the eyes of the disciples, following his death and his burial and ultimately his resurrection, then their eyes were opened and they began to see the victory and all that God had planned in the life of that lamb. I guess there's a couple things we could say about this in terms of what does it mean for you and I that Jesus was crucified, that he endured and bore all of our sins, but not just bearing our sins, but bearing the humiliation, the ignominy, the mockery. And it Really, it, it helps, I think, for me, and I'm sure it does for you, that we might bear the same kind of mockery that comes our way because we stand with him and we identify with him. In other words, I'm trying to say is that the church of today is like this. I'm not waving wheat out in the field. I'm talking about the shifting waves on the ocean. Whichever way things are going, that's the way they're headed. In other words, the easy way. When Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. He wasn't talking about somebody like the waves of the sea that <coughs> James talks about. He was talking about somebody that was this, steadfast, eyes on the goal, purpose behind their devotion to Christ, commitment that when they took up the cross, there would be no turning back. Not like Luke said, or excuse me, Jesus said in Luke's account, where he said, any man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus was steadfast. Even before that, when he was coming down from Galilee on his final trip to Jerusalem, it says he, he made his face like a flint. And it just simply means that he had one purpose and goal in mind, and he was not going to turn away from Jerusalem. He was not going to turn away from the cross. And so we shouldn't either. I know. I know that when the time comes and our faith is challenged, it's not as easy to say, I'm going to stand as you might think it would be. Because it's hard. It really is hard. But the consequence of the reward for being steadfast and faithful 
is far worth it. And we have the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who stayed faithful all the way to the very end. All the way to when that spear was thrust into his side. And that final gasp of air was taken by him and he died. He never wavered one bit. And so we. So we, if we want to experience and be a part of that kingdom that he has promised, then we're going to have to be as faithful and steadfast and enduring and unwavering. Oh yeah, let the world go on. Just go on and let them have their way. Because they are. The world's going to do its thing. You and I have another calling. Completely. And we just talked about a Friday. Our thing. Peter said, this very one who had earlier denied Jesus says, make your calling and election sure. Now, he had already earlier said in the beginning of that verse, uh, excuse me, in the beginning of that passage, he says, I'm writing this letter to those of you who have obtained like precious faith. These were believers. He's telling the Christian, you make your calling as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, make it sure. And you can do that. I can do that by being obedient. Father, we thank you for blessing us with the sure word of God, the sure word of prophecy, the promises that the Lord Jesus is coming again. I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts about the necessity and the importance of being ready when he comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.